Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Who is the most articulate voice of global capitalism? George Soros comes to mind, of course, and so does Sir Martin Sorrell, the founder of the international marketing leviathan WPP. Last week, we both spoke at the International Advertising Association's Global Summit in Kochi, India, and Sir Martin was in a typically expansive mood when, over lunch, he talked to me about global democracy and its discontents. Sir Martin, Sorrel or Sorrel? Doesn't matter. I'm not offended either way. But you're S4 Capital now. You're not WPP, right? That's right. Well, Martin, I'm sure you're bored about talking about WPP. Let's talk about something more important. One thing more important, I would argue, than WPP. Which is my daughter. Apart from your daughter, <laughs> two things more important. The state of democracy around the world. You're worried about it. What, are you? I'm worried about the rise of populism, yes. Is the rise of populism, by definition, a threat to democracy, or can it be itself democratic? It's a symptom of a problem. I don't think it's the cause of the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. So the vote on Brexit, the vote on Donald Trump, what's happened to Macron in France, to Merkel in Germany, uh, what's happened in Italy where you've got this extraordinary coalition of left and right populists, what you see going on in other parts of the world of a similar vein, I think is a symptom of a problem which it's rooted in technological change and technological disruption, I think. I think many people feel disenfranchised and ignored particularly at a time when technology appears to be a threat. I'm of the school that thinks that technology and technological advances tend to destroy jobs rather than create incremental jobs. And that might be short term. It may be long term. I'm not clever enough to figure out what it is. But I think fundamentally, that's the problem. And the middle class is being hollowed out. And the middle class feels threatened. And things like artificial intelligence, which we are in the foothills of developing will accelerate and exacerbate the problem. So I think that's the biggest issue. And it's an issue that Keynes wrote about in the general theory, I think in 1929. But what's it got to do with democracy? Well, what it has to do with democracy is that people feel disenfranchised. They feel that they're being ignored. They feel they're being disadvantaged. Are they? I think, yes, to some extent, that's correct. In other words, the capitalist system or the competitive economic system rather than the planned system, has ignored or failed to take into account the significant 
disruption that globalization in addition to technology brings and the changes that that creates in industries, you know, industries decline and rise. Paul Polman this morning in his speech mentioned that... Uh, and we're in, uh, just to give some context here, we're in uh, Kochi in India at an international advertising event. Polman, what is he, the current or the former CEO of... Former CEO. Former CEO of Unilever spoke about fundamental reforms to capitalism. Yeah, yes, but he, what he also said was the average life of a company on the S&P 500, whatever it was, used to be 67 years and is now 17 years, whatever it is. So WPP has been in existence for twice the average age, you know, 33 years. What he was saying was that these business models are subject to decline and fall much more than they used to be. In that environment, people are very focused on the short term. Obviously, that has implications, not just globalization or technology for jobs, but, you know, if you're focused on the short term, you tend to make corrections to your labor inputs if I can put it politely, more quickly than if you take a long-term view and you're more likely to cut and cut early if you're put under pressure to do so or respond to the short-term interests of stake shareholder or stakeholders. So I, I think the system has failed to subsidize industrial change. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously, education plays a role here or re-education, making it possible for people who are out of work to move they become rooted in communities where prospects are diminished. So it's education, it's about infrastructure in the soft sense, not just roads and railways, but educating people on the opportunities that there are available elsewhere and encouraging greater mobility. So the system has to adjust in a much more fluid way to these changes that are brought about by global expansion. And by technological development. So you're a, you're a marketing guy. You've been in the, the industry a long time. You're about the first person who's ever said that. They usually say, I'm a bean counter and accountant. Well, anyway, you understand marketing. You may not be a marketing guy. You may not be on the creative side. But do the democracies need to come to the S4 capitals and the WPPs of the world to reinvent or reinforce their message? Is there a problem on the marketing side? Are people forgetting what no, democracy is? No, this is, is a product problem. I mean, there's a it's not a market, it's a product problem. Yes, yeah, a product with democracy well, as the product. No, 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 not with democracy as the product. With the economic system, the economic system has become much more short term. The secular growth of these companies has become much more short term. There's much more volatility in a volatile world. What Paul Polman again calls a VUCA world, where volatility and uncertainty is conflict is prevalent. What you have to do is adjust the system much more radically through effectively subsidy. I mean, you have to say that if the system is going to be maintained, there are costs. For example, if you look at the proportion of GDP going to labor over the years, it's declined significantly. Proportion of GDP going to capital, particularly post layman post-2008 with cheap money and central bank policy being to ease money. Clearly, there has to be a correction. There has to be a redistribution of the money that has gone to capital, to labor, to even it out, to deal with these frictions that are caused by geographical change and technological change. And when I talk about subsidies, I'm talking about income subsidies. I'm talking about education subsidies, mobility subsidies, to enable people who are thrown out of work or feel they have been thrown out of work or feel they have been dispossessed. You know, real incomes of so-called middle-class people have barely budged over the last few years. 
So real incomes have not risen. And we were accustomed to real incomes rising for people in significant ways over time. So is the S in S4 capital for socialism? For socialism, it's interesting because I think the president of the United States, Donald Trump, brilliantly framed that in his State of the Union speech a few days ago. And what he has done is set the agenda for the re-election in 2020. Now, what's interesting is the demographics of the U.S. have changed markedly. The new mainstream, you know, which is uh, Afro-American, which is uh, Hispanic, which is non-white, have become the majority. Certainly, if new babies born, it's the majority. And we will have to see what political ramifications come as a result of that. If you look at the analysis of the Trump vote, a third of the people who could have voted in the U.S. didn't vote. So what it effectively means is that one-third of the electorate voted for Trump, one-third voted for Clinton, a little bit more than one-third, and the rest never turned up. So whether, as a result of what's been happening over the first two or three years of Trumpism, that at the next election they are going to turn up and vote against is another question. My own view is I would bet on Trump being re-elected in 2020. So he will last for not two years, but for another six years. But from the point of view of democracy, are you suggesting that it might be better to have Bernie Sanders than Donald Trump, that in the long term... I'm not suggesting that at all. I mean, if you ask me for a personal opinion, I don't think it would be. But if you're asking me whether the system has to be changed to accommodate the downsides of the system, the answer would be yes. So you have to, again, let me just wrap it up in the one word subsidies. Subsidies have to be paid to those parts of society that suffer as a result of geographical or technological change. You mentioned Keynes. You talk about subsidies. At what point do subsidies become socialist in, in terms of reallocating well, You're resources? putting a, an emotive label on it, particularly in the context of an American election. There's a considerable part of America, basically the stuff in the middle between the East and West Coast liberals who tend to talk to one another in bubbles. You're putting an emotive label on it. So don't let's call it socialism. Don't let's call it communism. If we want to maintain the free enterprise system, what I'm saying is you have to modify it to provide for some sort of subsidy of those people who are disadvantaged. There are very few people who are more global than you, Martin. You spend your life traveling around the world, but talking bit, in yeah. South India, you mentioned your families in the Dominican Republic at the moment. What do you make of the crisis of democracy outside the West, in Brazil, in Turkey, obviously in Russia and China? Is democracy on the run outside the West? Whether you describe it that way or not, I mean, you can try and develop broad, sweeping generalizations. What I'm trying to do is to be a bit more specific about it and less emotive. What I'm saying is the current system that we have, you know, do I think the Chinese system is better? Would I want to impose the Chinese system, let's say five-year planning system on the West? I think we can plan better in the West, but I'm not saying that I would want that system. What I'm saying is the system that we have is going to have to be modified. If we don't modify it, the symptoms that we're seeing in these populist changes are going to get worse. The disease you know, will become, if I can call it a disease, will become even more prevalent and the rise of populism will be even more significant. It's significant enough already. And look at the mess that we're in in the UK over Brexit. You're not George Soros, but you could be. <laughs> I mean, you're about as close to George Soros as anyone will get. You're 
the son of a Jewish immigrant to the UK from... And the grandson thereof. Grandson, Jewish immigrants into the UK. As a sort of global Jew, to put it yeah. crudely, what do you make of the rise of urban in Hungary and other movements of the right which seem to pick on Jews like Soros? Well, it's a function of what we've just been talking about. I mean, the anti-Semitism tends to be aligned with the right, but amazingly, it seems also to be aligned with the left. You look at the UK and the Labour Party. I mean, seven Labour MPs have resigned around Brexit, true, but around anti-Semitism too. Luciana Berger was sort of viciously attacked by people inside the Labour Party. You know, that's ironic in a way because my father's father came to the UK. Most of the Jews that were immigrants in the UK, many went to the left and became communists, actually, Labour Party supporters. My father went to the right. He was a Tory supporter, and there were Jews that went to the right too, despite what had happened during the war with the Holocaust. Obviously, a lot of Jews went to the left. I find it particularly ironic that the Labour Party should be accused, I think, with justification of being anti-Semitic. Maybe you can modify it by saying anti-Zionist, but anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist, uh, some people believe that the two words are the same. I think there's some difference there, but whatever it is, it's very strange to me that the left in the UK has espoused anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist tendencies. It's not confined to the right. Martin, you and I, over the years, we've talked a lot about the impact of technology on business and on culture. What's the role of big tech, particularly social media, in this crisis of democracy? I've always believed that the tech platforms were media companies. And I think part of the problem was that they never admitted they were media companies and thereby hangs the problem. Now, they've sort of quasi admitted it, or maybe more than quasi, whatever that is, because we have 30,000 people in Facebook who are monitoring content, and we have 10,000, whatever it is, people in Google, Google monitoring content, and you see it in the rise of their costs and the rise of their expenses, and they're squeezing to some extent their margins, or their margins are still very, very strong. So the critical issue for me is admitting and realizing that you've got to be responsible for the stuff that flows through the pipes. I mean, I've said this, you can't sit there and say we're digital engineers, I said this years ago, digital engineers tightening the nuts on digital pipes and ignore the whatever is flowing through the pipes. You are responsible, just like Rupert Murdoch's responsible for what his newspapers say, or Channel 4 is responsible for what's on their programming, or ITV, or NBC, or CBS. I mean, the problem with technology is the regulator is always behind, never catches up but is slow to adjust regulation in relation to what's going on. So we need more regulation well, we need more on tech to protect democracy? I think the tech platforms have admitted, I think, in public scrutiny and in public... When they show up, of course. When they show up. In fact, I think most of the major platforms have said there will have to be increased regulation as accepted. I mean, I remember going to Brussels many years ago with Randy Rothenberg at the IAB to argue that opt-out should be the consumer method. Now, there's no way we could get away with opting out. It has to be opt-in, and it has to be opt-in on a totally transparent basis, where consumers know, for example, in the area of data and privacy, exactly what they're letting themselves in for when they sign on to a site. And when was the last time 
Andrew, that you didn't accept rather than reject some teaser to getting onto a site. I think when BA had a hack, I wondered at one stage whether I should go onto their site or go onto membership awards or whatever it was. But beyond that, I can't remember an instance when I've declined. I've always accepted. And the problem is that you never want to send that document that you've got to plow through, which is pages long, to some lawyer. It would take you about a month to do so, and you want to get onto the site immediately. Martin, you've always been extremely bullish on China. You're I remain, as, sir. You're as knowledgeable about the Chinese economy as anyone outside China. Are you troubled, though, by the social credit system? Do you buy Kai-Fu Lee's argument that we're seeing the true fragmentation of the digital world into a I think it was Eric Schmidt as well, into an American and a Chinese version. You certainly have got a, a G2 race. And what's going on between China and India now, which is not a trade tiff, it's a trade war, in my view, is going to carry on for a long time. The Chinese plan on a long-term basis. I think they look at Trump and say he's going to be around for two years or six years. It doesn't matter because we plan on a 100-year basis. So we're going to look at to the long term. I think they will come to some sort of agreement in relation to the current tariff negotiations, if you call them that. But for the Americans to suggest to the Chinese, by the way, they should drop five-year planning, to my mind, is a nonsense. But putting that to one side for a minute, the Chinese will come to some short-term agreement. But I think longer term, you know, I agree with what Hank Poulsen said at a conference, I think it was a Singapore summit recently, that we're in danger, if not already, in some form of cold war between the US and China. Now, obviously, if the president changed in 2020, if one of the socialist presidents, presidential candidates emerged, Bernie or Elizabeth or whatever, maybe life would be different. But in relation to this particular aspect, it certainly would be different, but would it be different in this aspect? But it's clearly what's going on here is about who should be top dog. The reference to Kai-Fu Lee, I think, is interesting because you know he understands how strong China is technologically with the exception of the semiconductor industry, where they are way behind. But how chilling is the Chinese model that they're inventing, this digital surveillance that seems to be built into the very system? It may be chilling, but it's extremely effective. The question is, and obviously you've seen a Chinese president that has changed the constitution in relation to his term and his place in it, and you've seen a change in the way that the Chinese government interacts with media. It's probably become more restrictive. Uh, we have to see. I mean, obviously, if it becomes too restrictive, it will have ramifications. And just think about this for a minute. You know, the old conventional wisdom was that the Chinese economy would have to grow at 6.5% to maintain social stability. Social stability, the key issue being how do you absorb the rural population, you know, the millions or however many people it is that come into urban city centers each year. And that jobs, the supply of jobs are critically important. The conventional wisdom was that if the Chinese economy slipped below 6.5% growth, GDP growth, there wouldn't be enough growth to absorb that employment or deal with the unemployment caused by the shift from rural to urban. What I detect is that the Chinese are now willing to accept low quantum growth for high quality growth. That's around President Xi's 13th five-year plan the switch from investment savings to consumption, putting in a healthcare safety net because that's why people save for in case their parents or they get ill. 
So I think what you're seeing, you know, is a change in the Chinese approach. Now, the question in my mind is, if Chinese growth slows, and now being at 10 trillion, 11 trillion, whatever the Chinese economy is, as opposed to 4 trillion, you know, six and a half on four is not as much as five on 10 or 11 or 12. So it might be sufficient for social stability, but that is what the government has to watch. The government has to watch that they are growing at a sufficient rate to maintain social stability. And at what point will the Chinese people say, as enough is enough, we don't want this? Well, that is the issue. You know, at, the Chinese have been on the wrong side of history for the last 200 years. You know, you go I mean back the to, people or the state? Well, the country. In the early 19th century, they were the 40% of worldwide GDP came from the BRICS and next 11. It's going to be that again, because the Chinese are on the up. Here we are in India. My view is India will become the most populous country on the planet. And my view that we will see continuous growth in India. It won't be the richest country in the world, either on a per capita or absolute basis, but it is going to grow and prosper, I think, quite significantly. And that's where I would place my chips, you know, if that's why we're opening in India in 24 hours or so. And while we're coming back to India, because for the years, the 33 years I was at WPP, India continued to grow and was probably one of our best, if not our best countries and had our strongest brands, all our brands very strong in the market, etc. So could India become the model for a, a vital democracy as we well, see the what, increasing what? marginalization of Western Europe and the rise of China? Could we see India as a model for democracy for developing countries? Well, it's an interesting question you raise because I think one of the problems for India has been that there's been a lack of strong leadership. And I think under Prime Minister Modi, and we have an election coming up, and we'll see whether he can maintain his position and a sufficient majority to continue to change. It has caused some friction, and there are some people believe that he may have gone too far and some dissatisfaction. I happen to think he's been very good for India and very good for brand India, both domestically and globally and internationally. But you know, people who do take tough decisions, which I think he has done, and make difficult decisions often suffer at the polls. Take, think of Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. Angela Merkel reaped the Schroeder dividend because he did a lot of the tough stuff, but then was suffered at the polls as a result. The thing about India is that, you know, if you could have a country that was too democratic, that maybe what it needed was a little bit less democracy and a little bit stronger leadership. For some people, bristle at that. Well, I hope people bristle. I always like what you say because people do bristle at it. You're a, you're a bristly <laughs> character, Martin. Final question. I was referring to what Modi had done. Yeah, I know. Bristle. So final question. In 10 years, a simple question. In 10 years' time, will the contemporary, the, the seeming crisis of democracy, will it appear transient, ephemeral, something that we misunderstood, or will it have deepened in 10 years' time? Well, I mean, it's like climate change, isn't it? I mean, it's... Um, it isn't, because it's not a scientific issue, is it? I think it has certain parallels. So the answer is, I think the system, it's a bit like what we see going on with Brexit. And it may be too late on Brexit, but the system is starting to crack. Seven Labour MPs leave the Labour Party. Three Conservative MPs leave the Tory Party. Is that enough? You know, reading the press this morning... There are some newspapers saying this is the start of something big. I don't know. But my view in relation to what you're raising, the questions you're raising around democracy or populism, I think, which is a more accurate description, or the issues around climate change is, will the system react and change? It's like the British monarchy. 
the British monarchy has managed to sustain itself by continuously changing its approach, attitudes, and thinking. And that's what's got to happen here. The system is being challenged. You know, the democratic system is being challenged in the ways that we've talked about for the reasons maybe we've identified or not, but I think it has to do with globalization and technology. And we have to modify the results of that, in this particular case, in my view, by subsidies, financial subsidies in certain areas like education and mobility and soft infrastructure. And taxes. I hope you pay some taxes, don't you? So, yes. I'm not so sure that disincentivizing people by raising taxation is the issue. It's a question about whether you should subsidize and you have to fund that in some way. But the question is, how do you subsidize those people who've been disadvantaged by the system? Well, you rephrased my question beautifully, but you didn't answer it. So I think the system will adapt. So we'll be stronger in 10 years. You're, you're an optimist my, then my when it comes is, to yes. democracy. Yes, yes. My view is that the system will adapt to these challenges, that the populist challenge, or indeed in the case of climate change. Now, some people believe it's too late, that we've already gone too far in the climate area. But my view is that the system will adapt. So in 10 years' time, we'll meet back in Kochi and see whether you're right or not. Hopefully, I'll still be alive. I shall be 84 then. A youthful 84-year-old. <laughs> well, we'll be back, Martin. Thank we you so do. much. Thank you very much, Andrew. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. And this interview is with Sir Martin Sorrell. Stick around as Andrew will be back after a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is Optimism and Courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview with Sir Martin Sorrell. So Martin's new company is called S4 Capital. And as I joke with him, the S, which of course stands for Sorel, could also mean socialism. He argues that global capitalism has what he calls a product problem, which has spawned anti-democratic populist movements all over the world. And the only way to fix this, Sir Martin insists, is through what he calls subsidies, which are the redistribution of privilege via income, mobility, and education. That all sounds like a very civilized, democratic kind of socialism to me. Like contemporary Denmark or post-Second World War Britain. Socialism, to borrow an old term, with a human face. 
For all his faith in free enterprise, Sir Martin believes that we need more regulation if we are to effectively protect democracy, particularly in media where, he says, globally dominant Silicon Valley players like Facebook and Google haven't been accountable for the often flagrantly anti-democratic content published on their platforms. These Silicon Valley platforms are media companies, he insists, and so they need to be regulated like newspapers or television stations. As the head of the world's most powerful advertising company over the past quarter century, Sorel is right. It's a critically important message. Sir Martin has always been very bullish about the Chinese economy, but of course he's much less optimistic about Chinese democracy. So when, I asked him, will the Chinese people rebel against their authoritarian government and demand more democracy for themselves? It's an impossible question to answer, of course. But I think he's right to suggest that the stability of the Chinese communist regime is predicated on their economic success. If this growth stalls, then everything, yes, even the future of the Chinese Communist Party's dictatorship, becomes questionable. There's an opening in India, Sir Martin says, as the developing world's model for economic growth. But there may also be an opening for Indian democracy. As Western democracies either stall or fail, we need non-European models which inspire the rest of the world. The Modi regime in India isn't, of course, perfect either. But having spent the last week in India, there's something intrinsically democratic about the vibrant anarchy of Indian capitalism. India is the future, Sir Martin insists, and it's certainly a more democratic future than China. So will global democracy be in better shape in 10 years' time? The contemporary system, Sir Martin warns, is cracking. In the UK, for example, he believes that the two-party system is about to be reinvented. And while this might be a worrying development in the short term, he believes that in the longer term, at least in 10 years' time, the system will, to quote him, adapt. Is this optimism convincing? I think it will take more than 10 years. As Sir Martin says, we have a product problem with global capitalism. And I suspect it's going to take at least another quarter century for this system to be properly fixed by the establishment of Sir Martin's subsidies. Next week, we return to Estonia for a part two on how this tiny Baltic Republic is trying to reinvent democracy in the digital age. Guests include the architect of the country's unique e-residency program, as well as critics of these digital reforms. I look forward to talking with you again then.